Hi there, we are back on Art Curious today with another interview episode for you. Today's episode features a conversation about Light on Fire, the first comprehensive biography of the life and work of the abstract artist Sam Francis by award-winning author Gabrielle Sells. Drawing from exclusive interviews and private correspondence, including that of Ed Ruscha and Robert Irwin, Sells traces Francis's extraordinary and complex life. Francis first learned how to paint as a former Air Corps pilot while he was encased for three years in a full-body cast. His insatiable desire spanned women, places, experiences, art movements, and business deals for Francis to reach equilibrium. He courted change and drama, even encouraging conflict because it forced him to retreat into his art. And it paid off. As a young man, Sam saw his color-drenched abstractions fetch the highest prices of any living artist. With an international scope from World War II San Francisco to post-war Paris to New York, Tokyo, and Los Angeles, Light on Fire reveals the intimate story of a man who sought to resolve in art the contradictions he couldn't resolve in his life. Light on Fire is a revelatory biography that uncovers the formative events in Francis's life, along with the fictions he created around himself and his work. Gabrielle Sells is the award-winning author of Unstill Life, a daughter's memoir of art and love in the age of abstraction, and Light on Fire. Her essays and art reviews have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Hyperallergic, The Rumpus, and The Huffington Post, among others. So please enjoy this exclusive talk with Gabrielle Sells. Gabrielle Sells, welcome to Art Curious. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I am happy to have you here. So I think we mentioned really briefly, I'm a California native myself, mm -hmm. and I think I've always felt a kinship with a lot of West Coast artists. And I felt that with Sam Francis with his light and the color that he uses. Like I understand it somehow. I don't really know how to explain that. But I understand that you've had an altogether more personal and direct relationship and that you actually had a family connection. Your father knew the artist. You met the artist. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. My dad wrote the monograph on Sam France. He was going to exhibit. My dad was the head curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York in the 60s, late 50s to mid 60s. And he was going to do a Sam Francis show, but he left to come to Berkeley. Oh, that's that they originally met when dad was at MoMA and that show didn't happen, but another one did. And my dad wrote a monograph and they were really good friends. They, my dad felt like Sam was his brother. And in fact, they are buried in the same graveyard. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. that brings it to so a, when the I next level. when I see the other. <laughs> oh, I love that. So he's just, he is kind of part of your family. You know, I didn't know I was a child when I met Sam. And he was he was my father's friend. And he was always traveling. So he was always in and out. So I didn't, I wouldn't say I knew him very well. But I certainly was really aware of him and his work and his life. So how did this book come out, uh, talking about Light on Fire? Because I'm assuming, was it that personal connection of having that familial background with your dad that this book was inspired by? Or was there something else at hand? Yeah, I, honestly, I had written a memoir called Unstill Life about growing up in the art world. And every chapter was had a focus of on an artist and a work of art that was significant, I, first to my dad, and then as I entered the book more and more to me. And Sam, there was a chapter on Sam, and I had written a lot of 
stuff about Sam that I had heard, that I read in my dad's book, that I read in art history books, and about being in an airplane crash and rising from the debris and uh, these stories that I had read. And after I published the book, Deborah Burchette Lear from the Sam Francis Foundation got in touch with me and said, we don't, we're not, it wasn't that story. It was the story about Sam wanting to fly a plane kamikaze style into the compound of Vazu Inumitsu, who was his main collector at that time, patron, because he wanted to marry Sazu's daughter. And Deborah said, we don't think that story is true, that he didn't get hold of a plane in Japan and try and fly it into the compound. So I thought, that's really interesting. Everybody's written about that story and art history lore. So I wondered what else wasn't true. And I ended up finding out that there was a lot of self-mythology in Sam's story. But I have to say, at first, I was really hesitant to write the book because Sam had been married five times. Wow. And my dad was married five times. And I felt like I was done with men who were married five times. I I was, I didn't, and that whole uh, mid 20th century male ego problem, I just wasn't sure I wanted to deal with it. But then I got really interested in how all the early tragedies that happened to Sam and how he turned that into this very lyrical, beautiful, luminescent artwork that is also very much about life and death and how uh, as an artist, he was always trying to reach behind the curtain to make a connection between heaven and earth. So I just, I really I found the whole story really intriguing and really interesting. And in fact, really different than my dad's story. And then my dad encouraged me to write the book. I didn't think I could take on the writing a biography of Sam because he had such a big life, but he did. It worked out very well. I loved this book. And I that story about the kamikaze plane uh-huh. situation, it seems like it would fit just even given the actual biography that you put together. Because as you mentioned, he had this incredibly larger than life, must be believed or heard to be believed kind of stories going on. All yeah, these little- well, he didn't need all the self-mythology. <laughs> right? Exactly. Anyway. But I think it helped create a persona. And there are a lot of artists, Duchamp, Frida Kahlo, who have created mythologies, Joseph Boys, who have created mythologies that sort of work dovetail with their art. And I think Francis was one of them, too. I totally agree. And that was funny that you mentioned Frida Kahlo because she came in mind a little bit in talking sort of San Francis's way into the art world. So right. I actually want to right. ask you about that because you mentioned briefly the trauma of his early years. And I'm always fascinated about people's paths to becoming these world-renowned mm-hmm. artists. And his by no means seems like a clear or a clean one and certainly not the happiest. Would you guide us through those early years and that transition into becoming a working artist? Sure. Sam was born in 1923 in San Mateo. So he had a kind of idyllic early childhood. His father was a mathematician. His mother was a Francophile and they, he grew up there. And then when he was 12, the family was vacationing down in Santa Monica and his mother got sick. She had basically a heart attack and, but she recovered because it was the depression. His dad didn't want to lose his teaching job. Everybody was worried. The kids had to go back to school. So they left her um, down there in the care of her mother at the Georgian Hotel in Santa Monica. And Sam, she died like a week later and Sam never saw her or his little brother, George. They never saw her again. And what's more, they took her body back 
to where she lived and her mother took it. So they didn't even have a grave to visit. And anyway, so so then his dad was a widower and taking care of these two little boys. And Sam felt really, he was very close to his mother and he was really torn up about it. But six months later, he was involved in an April Fool's joke. A little boy brought a gun to school that was not going off, wouldn't go off and something. And they thought it was broken and they were all playing with it and passing it around in the boy's bathroom downstairs. And it was passed into Sam's hand and it accidentally went off. It did in fact go off and shot his friend Roy Powers and he shot and killed him. So so Sam had these two double-ended tragedies, back-to-back tragedies. And his dad, who was from Newfoundland, took the kids and drove them across the continent from California to the edge of the Avalon Peninsula, where they took a boat to Newfoundland. So they drove through the Dust Bowl through like this hottest summer in recorded history at that time in an unair conditioned car. You can imagine. And there were no fully, there were no highways that we have today. Right. So they were on these little roads and they go, they get up to there and they're staying in a place called Iceberg Alley because there were ice flatbergs floating offshore. <laughs> and he saw the Northern Lights. And I think it set in Sam a pattern to of escaping drama and tragedy and and leaving pain behind, but, and also travel as a way of engendering new visions. And then the other thing that happened with that trip was that it internalized for Sam a very big sense of space, which I think he translated into his paintings. And then he goes off and he has, comes back to California and he has a regular high school life doesn't talk about his tragedies too much, goes off to Berkeley and World War II happens and he joins the Air Corps. He wants to be a pilot. He starts training as a pilot. He actually wants to be a reconnaissance pilot, which is flying really low over the ground and photographing pictures. So I thought it was really interesting though. He wasn't even thinking of being an artist, was like not on his radar at all. He identified his war his role in the war is a visual one, but he starts to get sick with one ailment after another and is takes about a year for them to do, diagnose him with spinal tuberculosis. And so he is put in, he has a surgery to remove part of his spine and they replace it with a bone from his femur a graft. And he is put in a plaster corset and sandwiched between two pieces of canvas, like two sheets of canvas and hung suspended in the air above a mattress. And he's basically like that for a couple of years. And I know, and he, he's, he starts to lose his mind, basically. Understandably um, so. Yeah, my gosh. and he's very depressed, reads everything he can, bored. And then somebody, one of the nurses, Red Cross nurses, gives him a set of paints and he starts painting and he wins a teeny little competition in the hospital and quickly becomes, starts painting 16 hours a day. And he's transferred to Fort Miley in San Francisco, where David Park, the painter David Park, comes to visit him. And he becomes his mentor and uh, brings him paintings to look at, brings some art books to look at, lets, has his students come in and brings Sam canvases and paintbrushes and arranges for Sam to visit the Legion of Honor where he sees in El Greco. And so this is, that's how Sam became an artist. He, and he literally, he was suspended in the air over the painting. So his first position as a painter was looking down on um, hanging above a painting and looking down on it, which is when you think about Sam's vocabulary as an artist, it's 
very much about land, land masses and air and space and images seen from different perspectives. So that also really translates into the body of work he goes on to produce. I love this. And I also love that it's just such an interesting origin story. And I yeah. mentioned Frida Kahlo. I even talk about the plaster right. corset alone, that right. both of them were in this situation of not really considering art as their career or their avocation even, and that they were in these life-changing health issues with her trolley accident, with him with tuberculosis. And right. it was in that awful uh, periods that led them to becoming artists. I love that silver lining. I think that is so interesting. Uh, yeah. And so I, the other piece of that is that Sam truly believed, and this went on, I, I think it had a repercussions throughout his life. He truly believed that art saved his life. He connected life, death, and painting together. They were like the, this sort of strange triangle that really impacted his whole life. And I think that comes across in some of his paintings because it, they have that spiritual or somehow mystical element to them. Could you talk about that? I think so. I think at a time when a lot of spiritualism certainly was not in art, Sam was trying to reach behind the veil. And so you see this like in the Basel mural, this beautiful triptych he did and started in 1956 and completed in 1958. It's this heavenly world where these golden orange cloud are parting and you can almost see the heavens behind it. I think Sam was an artist who was attempting to, he was really interested in concepts of cosmology and infinity and time and space and how to capture that on the canvas. Later on, he did these white paintings, which are early on, he did a series of white paintings that were creamy white and dirty white. And then later on, he did his edge paintings, which were very reflective white. But he was really interested in these idea, the idea of ma, which is a Japanese concept of, of space. And it's this idea that there is no empty space. Space is a charged medium. It's like the breath in a, in a line of music or the pause in a line of poetry. That space has meaning and it gives meaning to form. And I think Sam was trying to figure out a way how to capture those ideas on canvas. More on Sam Francis with Gabrielle Sells right after this quick break from today's sponsors. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I try to do whatever I can to make sure that I keep my car running perfectly, I get its oil changed, I get the tires rotated, and I generally just take good care of it. Now, we also try to do the same for our bodies, with exercising and eating right, trying to get enough sleep and more. But just as important is doing so for your mind, because how we care for our mind affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest just as much time and care into keeping our brains healthy. There are plenty of ways to support your brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. And there is also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I use BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and I loved being able to talk to them via phone or chat without waiting, traveling, or sitting awkwardly in an office. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, and like me, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So I recommend you give it a try. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. 
Art Curious. One of the things that I found was completely interesting is I think about him as a California or a Californian yeah. artist in so many ways. But something that I learned in Light on Fire was that he kind of globetrotted around quite a oh, bit. He was, yeah, he had studios because he went to Paris in 1950. When most he got out of graduate school, he went after he got out of the hospital, he went to Berkeley and he wasn't really a good student because he he couldn't just didn't wasn't really interested in going to classes, but he was interested in painting. But he anyway, when most artists were heading to New York, Sam, which also came back to haunt him and it was a great boon to his career in some ways, but it also established a very complicated relationship to New York and San Francisco. But he went to Paris and he established his career in Europe. And then from Europe, he went to Japan and he established his career in Japan. So by the time he got to New York, they didn't really know what he was. But he was like like a, a synthesizer. He synthesized ideas that were happening in America with ideas that were happening in Europe with ideas that were happening in Japan. And I think that allowed for all these kind of mutant strains to enter his work. But it also made it really hard to codify him. It remains, you're not able to brand Sam Francis the way you're able to think of a Rothko painting and you just immediately think of those pulsating squares, rectangles. Yes. And I was actually going to talk, I wanted to ask you about that because it feels like there's this sense of in-betweenness. I know that's not quite a word, but that's how it feels because it, it He's not West Coast necessarily because he's traveling around. He's not East Coast, but then he's not European. He's not American. He's a little mismatch of all of them. And I especially want to ask you about that decision not to go to New York because we think about in American art, this is that height of Abex coming to life and really being New York as the center of the entire art world. How did that affect him by not being there at that time and choosing to go to Paris? Yeah, I think Sam threw him right in the middle of that battle between Paris and New York for a center of the art world. Yeah. And it came back to haunt him. But Paul Schimmel makes a great comment. He said Sam made an end run around the New York painters by bringing the vocabulary of abstract expressionism to Europe, but filtered through the lens of California. And I think that really nails it. I, I think the other problem with Sam in New York was he was not first generation, nor was he second. He was somewhere in between. And he became really well known and famous and started making money very early on in his career, which was also frowned upon you know, by the <laughs> New York school, right? You weren't supposed to make money or be commercial. And he, so that was frowned upon. He, so he was like the age of second generation painters, but he had the status of a first generation painter in Paris. He showed in Paris, his first one-man show was in Paris, opened two months before Pollock's first one-man show in yeah. Paris. Wow! So that kind of usurped the American. So there were all these complications. He also had, Sam was a virtuoso. He basically picked up a paintbrush and it was just, it just flowed out of him. He just kind of, it was like, it just, flowed. And so he had this, Al Held said it, he said that Sam had a very lyrical touch. And that touch was at least seen by New York as being decorative and French and reminded them too much of Monet and Matisse, um, mm. two artists that Sam really loved. He was trying to bring that vocabulary, French 19th century art or, or an early 20th century art into his paintings in the same way Joan Mitchell did, but in a much more agitated way, I would say with Joan. 
Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. I don't think I realized that they were famously in a relationship for a while. Well, a relationship, I think <laughs> they maybe had a one night stand. But oh, there you go. Yeah, a little thing. But then she met Sam's friend Jean Paul Riopel, and that was a really long relationship. But Joan and Sam, he, Sam could never have had a relationship with Joan. When you think of her personality and the personalities of the women Sam was attracted to, Joan was really forceful. Yes. And Sam had many affairs. And I think many of his friendships had some crossover. But yeah, so they remained really good friends. And their work actually speaks to, because they were both seduced by light. So their work speaks to, has a vocabulary too, um, and a conversation. There was something that I also found really intriguing when I was reading through and really learning about his biography, which I didn't, honestly, until reading your book, I did not know a lot about his life, that there were, not only was he an incredible artist, talking about being a virtuoso, he was also involved in a bunch of other really fascinating oh, yeah. and incredible endeavors. I'm especially thinking about his work with MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los right. Angeles, and his work during the AIDS crisis. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Sam was a philanthropist. He made money early on, and then he had lived in Europe where he really felt like the artists were more of the community and the culture and more respected than they were in America. He gets to, returns after another bout of tuberculosis in 1960, he returns to settle in Southern California in Santa Monica. And when he arrives there, still pretty much, LA is a pretty much of a no man's land, but didn't have really much of a modern art scene at all. And anywhere you were in LA was half an hour, 45 minutes from anywhere else. There was just no center. <laughs> right. It drove him crazy. It didn't have a Greenwich village. It didn't have Paris has a Saint-Germain de Prey. It doesn't, it had no center. And he felt like that the artists isolated were wasted and it was really hard on the artists and they should have, they, he felt he called the artists the nerve center of society. He, Sam truly believed, he said, I don't know how, but I think art should change the world. So he truly believed that art should change the world. And he got together with the Robert Irwin when they started putting the ideas for MOCA in place and had a big influence on, he helped determine who was the architect for the building, which was a good friend of his, Arata Isozaki, who was an unknown architect at that time, had never done a building outside of Japan. They were tossing around ideas for architects. The committee was made up for the first time of artists. So the artists on this committee did not want an architect to do a building that would overshadow their work. They were afraid of what's called the Guggenheim effect. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so they didn't want one. So they were tossing around and Sam just sat back and casually, let's go on our, around the world and visit our favorite museums and look at them. So he arranged this trip where they all got in a plane and they flew around the world. They went to Paris to look at the Pompidou. They went all these places. They ended up in Japan and he brought them to this little island where Isozaki had just done a building and they all fell in love with the red sandstone. And they ended up hiring Isozaki and Isozaki came to LA to do MOCA. And then Sam got himself onto the committee that was going to elect the first director. And again, he said, we should have an internationalist. If we want LA to be an international art scene, we should have an international internationalist. And so he enlisted his friend Pontus Holton, who was then the director of the Pompidou in Paris to become MOCA's first director. So he had a lot to do with it. And he also helped raise money 
for the museum by selling a whole edition of prints. And in the same time, he had started a publishing company, Lapis Press. He had started a litho shop, the litho shop. He had started the first, this was a couple of years later, the first wind energy company in America. And he did do an alternative medical research center during the AIDS crisis. He felt that he raised money and started donating money and funding this center to help with pain management during AIDS. It's completely amazing. And I love that philanthropic bent that comes through. Yeah, that was really intriguing to me because I love art. I love artists, but most artists lead very internal lives. And they, most artists go into their studio and work. And what happens in their life happens in the studio. And it's between them and an object. But Sam had this really big gregarious side to his personality, this really big exterior life. So it made him just a wonderful character, very complicated character to write about. He was extraordinarily ambitious. He was a little messianic, but I, <laughs> as a character, that was really fun. I love that. Yeah. And I think, again, I was mentioning that I didn't know a lot of the beats of his story. And I feel like I generally know a lot of the basic details of biographies of at least a handful of mid-century artists. So I'm thinking about George O'Keefe and Jackson Pollock. But as I mentioned, so much about Sam's life and his career were really big blanks for me. And I, in reading this, I'm wondering, I suspect that I'm not the only one who feels that way. Why, in your opinion, is Sam Francis not as well known or discussed amongst people in the art world, at least in the past, because as someone whose work and his life is so incredible and influential, high selling, he's not a second tier artist by any means, but he's still just a little bit left of center to, I think, historians. I think, first of all, I think that's the California, New York problem. That's true. (laughs) So, boy, and he never, he only really spent I think six months of his life living in New York, although he had a huge studio there, but he said he felt like a fugitive in New York. He did, the city just did not agree with him and he felt like an outsider there. So I think that's part of the problem. I also think that he, his work continued to change and evolve. And he, again, it, you can't really brand it. And it's so different. It covered such a wide range of styles and influences that came into it and that he made his own. And Sam was, he was just a bit of an outsider. He's an outlier. So I think that's also, there had never been a biography written about him, right? There's a Pollock biography. There are quite a few. There's quite a few right. O'Keefe biographies. So The material hadn't been gathered together and put into a biography at that point when I started it. I would say this is the first biography. It's certainly certainly not the most, it doesn't cover everything in his life. That would take volumes. Yes. But that's, I wanted to sort of stake that. Well, and I thank you for doing that because, again, this was such a revelation, I think, in so many ways. And so thank you for seeking out and writing this biography. It's well overdue. Where can viewers and listeners today with us go to see and experience his works in person? Really, most major museums, of course, right now, museums are undergoing a real change of what they're showing. (laughs) There's paintings of his in the San Francisco Modern. There's paintings at the Berkeley Museum. There's MoCA has a lot. LACMA has a lot. They're in New York. They're at the Guggenheim. There was big red for years hung at the bottom of the escalator at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. They're in the Art Institute of Chicago. They're in Paris. They're in most major cities, lots in Tokyo. They're everywhere. There's usually a gallery show. 
he was, he did a lot of work with printing. So he was part of the Renaissance in printing in this country. Sam was a really good and shrewd businessman. And for him, he loved the way working on a lithography stone or an etching plate because he, first of all, liked working down and being above his canvas or stone. There's so many of Sam's prints. And I actually feel like that's another problem with Sam because I think uh, for a while there in the 80s, the market got a little oversaturated with Sam's prints because they were everywhere. And so I think there was a pullback after that. But almost every gallery, modern gallery that sells sells prints, you'll see Sam Francis in them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for speaking with me today. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm wondering if you would be amenable to a brief little lightning round. Okay. Ooh, okay. Lightning. Okay. Oh my gosh. Most of this is all personal in nature, so it's not going to, I'm not going to trip you up on anything. Okay. But I just want to ask, so starting out, who is your favorite artist or artists besides Sam Francis? I love Jim Terrell. I love light and space art. It changes. It really changes. Totally. It's um, not a fair question. I, If someone asked me that, I know I would be like, oh, how much time do you have <laughs> today? It's blah, yeah, blah, blah. <laughs> it really, yeah. I can never, it's like asking me my favorite author. I, know. I can tell you my favorite book. But, but yeah, it's really hard to for me to do that. Speaking of books, what's your last favorite read in any genre? Oh, fiction with The Winter Soldier. Oh, nice. I have not read that. Yeah, it's okay. good. It's What's on your art history bucket list? I'm really thinking a lot about Marisol, the Ooh, sculptor. Yes. Marisol right now, I just, again, she's somebody who lived a multi-continental life. And I love the idea of silence in her work. So I'm just really thinking about Marisol. And I've been thinking a lot about Marisol's Last Supper. Did you ever see her Last Supper? No. No, she did a she did an homage to Da Vinci's Last Supper. And she did it, what's really interesting to me is she did it, it, a few years before Warhol did his homage to oh, the Last wow. Supper, and Warhol and Marisol were were friends, and I I think in some ways she probably influenced what he did, but of course she was the woman, and so <laughs> I would say actually one of my favorite artists right now is Marisol because I'm just really thinking about her work. That's awesome. I love her work too. Yeah, in- really interesting and unique. Yes. Is there something else, like something in art history that someone might be surprised to find that you like or dislike? No, probably not. I like my, I think NFTs are interesting, which is people might be surprised about nice. um, digital art, but I think they're interesting because of the collaborative aspect that's going on with them. Oh yeah. I totally agree with that. Okay. Two left. Secret talent. I break technology. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And what is your next project or, or next thing that you're working on that you're excited about? You know, about? I'm working on a lot of little pieces right now. I don't, I have, when I do a book, it's like a five-year endeavor that I disappear into. Yes. So actually, I haven't really come landed on the next project yet. That is a good thing sometimes too. Plus, it's hard though. It's really hard to be in that space where you're not sure. Oh yeah, I know it. I totally feel that. Yeah. But you made this amazing book happen. So I understand that it would also probably be nice in some ways to give your brain a little bit of a rest. <laughs> yeah. My brain is taking a rest whether I want it to or not. <laughs> Forced rest. Yeah. Gabrielle Sells, thank you so much for being yeah. with me on Art Curious today to talk about your awesome book, Light on Fire. Thank you for listening to this interview with Gabrielle Sells. Offer 
author of Light on Fire, The Art and Life of Sam Francis. In the show notes and the blog post today for this episode, you'll find a per- you'll find a link to purchase you'll find a link to purchase a copy of this book if you are so inclined and have the means. Equally important, please tell your friends about this interview if you have joined if you enjoyed it and share the world of art curious with just one person because every download and every single subscribe here and on YouTube helps. So thank you. We are in between seasons, but we will continue to be dropping, but we will continue to drop our weekly news roundups and bonus episodes right here into this feed. So stick with us and go check us out on YouTube in the meantime for all new exclusive content there. And in the mo- and in the meantime, we'll be back with you soon. Stay curious.